This week, the Working Tools Podcast is on the road at the Conference of Grandmasters of North America, being held right here in Seattle, Washington. So our format's a little different. We're going to have a series of short interviews with the attendees. We hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, brethren all, welcome to the Working Tools Podcast, a casual conversation around Freemasonry. First, it's important to note that our thoughts and opinions are our own and do not reflect those of our Grand Lodge or respective craft or concordant bodies. Please connect with us and ask questions via our website at theworkingtoolspodcast.com. So today we are interviewing Adam Kendall, who is the president of the... So that's my first question, right, right off the bat. Is it Philolethes Society? It can be Philolethes. Philolethes That works, Society. yeah. All right. So the Philolethes Society, of, of which I'm a member, so I should know how to pronounce it. But um, Adam, welcome. Oh, thank you. And uh, what, what is the Philolethes Society? Well, the Philolethes Society was uh, created in 1928 as an independent uh, research society. So it's the world's oldest independent research society. There are other research societies, but they're attached to a Supreme Council or a Grand Lodge, or they're at the, you know, like in the case of Quarter Coronati Lodge, they're a lodge under the Grand Lodge, United Grand Lodge of England. So it's all dedication to Masonic research and as a scholarly bent, or and not to scare anybody off, you know, it's a serious inquest into Masonic history rather than speculation and hearsay. So the uh, Philadelphia Society was uh, created in 1928 as a reaction to uh, a general malaise in the United States or North America about Masonic education, particularly within, you know, with the attitudes towards lodges and grand lodges, etc. There was not an interest. Um, and since that time, obviously, that, that has changed quite a bit, and we work with grand lodges seeking to improve their educational uh, uh, repertoire, and also brothers who are genuinely interested in Masonic research. So there are, I know I'm repping for the Philolathes Society, but there are other uh, Masonic research societies, and I believe that just as in every trade that, uh, or profession that you might find yourself in, there's usually an expectation that you, you know, subscribe to a journal or whatever, you know, an annual uh, uh, anthology that comes out. It helps improve your craft or business, whatever you're interested in. And that's essentially what these uh, organizations are. And I believe for me, the uh, some of the biggest and brightest are Philolathes, which is a quarterly publication. There is uh, the Scottish Rite Research Society and its annual Heritum. Uh, and then also uh, Quarter Coronati's Ars Quattro Coronatorum, which is an annual, and it's an English lodge, but it's, it's international in scope. Those are the big three. And then you have American Lodge of Research, you have Texas Lodge of Research. We all work together. So there's no sectarianism, and I think I, I want—I don't think that everybody believes that, but I want to encourage brothers to consider that all of these research organizations, we're in it together, and we're all friends. Um, we know each other to some extent, some more than others, but we all tend to work together. Each of these groups has their own focus, right? Uh, their own flavor, their own histories, but it's all Masonic research up to that point. So we try to help each other, no matter what venue you're going to be in. Right. Yeah, that's right, right here in Seattle, we have the Walter F. Meyer Lodge of Research, yes. uh, which is 
not perhaps what it once was, but it is still a, is a going concern. I was actually working with a paper recently that used a citation, uh, the, the, the Walter F. Meyer Lodger Research. Excellent. I'm a member of that, too. Um, so where, you said 1928, so you're coming up on 100 years. Are you going to have a big, big party somewhere? Can I come? Sure. Let's <laughs> party right now. Well, Let's course. start out. Um, yeah, the next couple of years are going to be a lot of uh, occasions to have celebrations. A lot of Scottish Rite temples that were built around the same time are having their hundred, you know, centennial birthdays. Philolathius is going to have its centennial. So it's a good time to be interested in this heritage, this Masonic heritage. Um, you know, there's obviously... Freemasonry from before, but for the most part, during the golden age of fraternalism, these temples, halls, whatever you want to call them, are now coming of age, you know, 100 years or a little bit more, and it is cause for celebration because it's part of what this, at least this golden age that I personally study. Some are really interested in studying the age of enlightenment, etc. I, I personally deal with post-Civil War, early 20th century. It leaves me out of a lot of symposia. <laughs> because the big thing is, you know, the Enlightenment age and everything like that. That's great. But my, my big thrill is, you know, what I just mentioned. But yes, let's party. So the, I'm, so I'm trying to put this timeline in my head. So this is after the, there's a post-World War One membership boom, right? And so was, was Phil Leahy sort of a reaction to the, the increase in numbers of more I, you would get social that, bench yeah. spaces? I believe that that would be a fair assumption. And not to be an indictment on you know the whole of Freemasonry, but yes, I mean, many organizations uh, grew during this time, and new ones were created. Uh, and some were a reaction to the increase in population in the civic and fraternal clubs, or the militarization of some of them. I was reading about this one very obscure uh, group in England that was uh, was like the Boy Scouts, but it was in reaction to the militarism of it, and they went the opposite way. Um, it's fascinating. So, you know, when you study Masonic history, you can't just center in one little corner. You have to consider that every idea in Freemasonry is definitely man-made, and it's someone's interpretation of something else or a rejection of someone else's opinion, right? That's a bit glib, but... It is, uh, you have to consider a larger context. And the reason why Freemasonry as we know it today, it didn't just happen that way because it has been written. Uh, it, it evolves over time, that's obvious, but how does it evolve? What, what, what social circumstances uh, will, will, you know, make it do that? You know, it, it, it doesn't do it on its own. Social currents will dictate what path we follow. Sounds like a lot of sounds like another big book that I was often quoted that's <laughs> you know has history in that realm too and changes and, but you would like to see things change especially the ritual right a little more modernization oh, are you going to throw me under the bus on that one? we have a, a I, I would say it's a bit except that it's real but uh, I I am not opposed to the modernization of some of the words in the ritual and my two co-hosts are less than fans of this idea. Oh, so I get, I get harassed for it periodically. <laughs> that could be a, a, a heated debate. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, it's it fun. It's fun. Luckily, we're friends. Yes. Well, you, you, you <laughs> hope so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so um, again, just to put it in a, in a historical context, so then the next year starts the Great Depression, right? Is that 
did that influence the progress of the organization? Do you know? Is that oh, a, yeah. I mean, I mean uh, it most certainly did because, because obviously, obviously Lodge, uh, Lodge membership dropped or it was very difficult. I know in the institution I work at, uh, the Oakland, uh, Valley of Oakland in Oakland, California, uh, we have letters uh, in our archive of the secretary writing brothers, like, you know, I know it's rough times, but you owe us money, you know, and, and, not, and it's not a, a, a crass thing, it's that, you know, we, there's still life going on, and what can we do to help this? You know, there are, you see the rise in, uh, it, it, whereas before with the fraternal organizations would offer benefits and burial or any kind of benefits because before the social services or the, um, you know, the, so, uh, the, the welfare state, um, fraternal organizations provided that, right? And during the Depression, people were left without, the entire system was broken. So it's standard reason that the, uh, before the New Deal, you know, it's, it was very difficult for these organizations to keep up their obligations to their brothers, especially when you don't have the money paid in. Some lodges, I'm sure, went dark, but many of them pulled back and just hunkered down. Um, my valley, they built, they, they finished their building in December of 1927. So it was on the heels, the, the end of the ride was near, right? But they maintained it. I mean, that, they, they kept about 8,000 people and that, you know, brethren inside that organization throughout that, so. Wow. Wow. Um, but the depression was a big, was, you know, a big obvious marker of a downturn, right? The, uh, the, the other ones would be, you know, the, the lost generation of the 60s, you know, where Freemasonry was perceived by the younger generation to be totally, uh, totally established, very square. And we missed out on that population. My interest, not necessarily during that era, but my interest is why, or the whys, um, and, 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 and the how comes, and how many other times we've missed generations. Because if we've missed one, we're definitely going to miss another one. I came in, I considered Generation X, and I know that the big thrill was on the millennials and moved on to the Gen Z, et cetera. Generation X, or whatever you want to call it, it, there weren't a lot of us when we came into Freemasonry, so we're just generally kind of glossed over, but yet we're one of the larger populations, I suppose, that knows technology, but a world before it as well. So I think that we would have a lot of something to say about it, and why we joined Freemasonry, because my parents were in that category of the 1960s, where it was, it was square, and it wasn't something you did. Now, why, why my generation, in some part, what are we seeking? You know, my parents were seekers, too. How did that rub off on me? And why Freemasonry, as opposed to, you know, a multitude of other groups that arose throughout the 20th century, and, you know, got very popular in the 60s. That was kind of the last spurt, I think, of these uh, mystical and spiritual groups. You know, I, I knew people in the 70s that were part of the you know, self-awareness groups like uh, EST and some of the more well-known ones like Scientology, which was different than EST, of course. They all had different flavors of gurus and, and yogis and stuff like that. So what brings someone back to somebody, something that's traditional like Freemasonry? Now, I'm not a square. But I do find the traditions of Freemasonry, although it's perceived as being conservative, not it's not a political thing, it's not anything like that, but it has a tradition that, that works, it has power within it. Um, if you interpret it as something that you know can work for you, I guess you can join anything you want, find power in anything, right? But I found that, 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 that I was always fascinated with it. But so I want to know why 
other young people would join in an organization? What generations have we missed? How are we speaking to them, right? Um, perhaps we missed a generation that was sort of on the tail end of like the 60s and 70s, you know, with the book Iron John. You know, kind of the neo-shamanism movement. There were some older hippies in that, and some of the guys that were a little bit about my age, and they take their shirts off in the forest and, you know, and bang on drums. And I don't want to be reductive or anything, but it's this kind of neo-shamanistic movement, wearing masks and feathers, and, you know, it's an interesting concept. Now, that's a specific type of approach to reclaiming masculinity. Where does Freemasonry fit into that, too? We have to ask these questions. I know that there are research, occasional resurgences of men's rights movements, and some of them are a bit dodgy politically, a lot of weird, strange bedfellows. Um, but there is a genuine uh, concern about where, how men can develop properly. And I think that maybe Freemasonry, not on the whole, but maybe we should admit that we have a particular type of approach to masculinity. Perhaps we, we work with that within the context of our own history. That's why the understanding of history and the history of movements like this is also important. So when you come up with your, your plan for the world, your social experiment for the year, you know, um, you have historical context and you can approach it in a measured way rather than just being an idea or uh, shooting from the hip, right? So there are many applications to understanding Masonic history. These are long-winded things. Way too much coffee. Um, so I just... I was imagining interview, but I've never interviewed. I deal with words. In my head and on the screen. So, so in addition, addition to Philalethes, I, I also edit Heritage for the Scottish Rite Oh, wow. Society. Oh, okay. So, so I, do I do a lot of work in words, and usually other people's words. Um, and then, then I have a question for you. Why, on my bookshelf of Heritage <laughs> issues, is one of them blue? Why is this? Yeah, you wanted to do that. <laughs> do you want to know the, 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 the Star Wars answer? I don't want to get anyone in trouble. I just... <laughs> well, there is a real reason for that. I can give you a fantastic one, but... It won't, it'll never hold up in court. It's really what it is, is that um, during the pandemic, there was a, a very real shortage of materials. And our printer, our publisher, you know, the, our printer uh, ran out of that, 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 uh, that, that burgundy color. That burgundy. Now, they had others on back order, but, you know, because of the supply chain interruption and everything, it wasn't gonna come in. And so we had to find something. Now, now, you could say, say, well, what, what, what color, color would you have in, in you know, a, a year of tragedy? tragedy. Uh, you know, you could say, well, we could have our, our black album. <laughs> Some would say that that's too morbid. And we, we decided that, the, that that color blue was a very, uh, very handsome color. No, it's, it's not unattractive. However, it just sticks out like a sore thumb. Right, on those, those who are very, uh, are, are, uh, claim to be OCD, uh, will be excitable about that, you know, and it does stick out. And you know, every every collection will have an oddity in it. Now, this one's a little bit too obvious, but if you if you were to look at a whole collection of Heritage, you'll notice that there is a shade difference. In there. So you can't claim that we always had that. I don't think anybody has. But if you wanted to fight on this, yes, I will concede that the blue is dramatic. But we just had no other choice in that. And we didn't want, want to go, go that, that way, way, but we just had to. And sometimes you just have to let the world be the way it is. Yep. Well, and it's unique, too, because some of them are printed in Burgundy, 
but only a special few were printed in blue, Matt. Only a special few. Well, no, the, the oh, entire the whole, run. The whole run, okay. Yeah. Oh, sorry. And, and, and was, you could have worked with me. It was, it was asked to be if we were going to reprint it, and sadly, no. Okay. Um, it costs a lot to produce It really sure, does. Oh, sure, yeah. And I know that the question could be then uh, asked, or it could be asserted that you should go digital. Well, there's a lot of digital, but, you know, I will... I will maintain that many of our readers or many of our subscribers, as say, are, um, there's a tactile, emotional component to holding a book. And I like to be a part of that. You can get many things on the internet. I don't, I'm not a Luddite. I use things on the internet. I know how to research on the internet. And I appreciate being able to, to, to do, um, you, know, I, you know, scan a document, OCR, and you go to town by typing in keywords. Right, but um, the the emotional relationship with the book, curling up with a good book, right? That is is irreplaceable. It's 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 a human thing, and so I like being a part of that. And so I will I will I will maintain that having it in print is necessary. If you don't like to read, it still looks good on your shelf. There you go. Yes. I mean, there's, there's something to be said about the aesthetic of the book. It, it, it's better than wallpaper. I think one of the first books, speaking of which, that I read after becoming a Master Mason, I subscribed to Phil Lathes, and I got Fiat Lux in the in the in the mail. You guys still produce that? Is that a, I I remember loving it when I first read it. It's been admittedly a few years since I, I recall, recall that, that too. too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, we haven't had that out. Okay, it's, we, oh, we it's a collector's item. <laughs> the quarterly model, you know, yeah, the quarterly quarterly magazine model has really worked for us, and it has been vastly expanded under uh, Sean Iyer's editorship. They look so good, you know, and, and the paper, the feel of it, much different from, you know, you know that kind of thin, weird, glossy paper. It, it, it's out of the dentist's office and into your coffee table. And so when I have extra copies or I'm done with mine, I take them to my valley. They look really good on a, on a coffee table. And brothers do pick them up. And uh, that's, that's the difference between an anthology or any kind of book, which you should read books still. But there's more. Somebody's more apt in a in a social situation or a you know a place that they're not going you know, very temporary. They're not going to sit there very long. They're not going to pick up a book. They will pick up a magazine and page through it. These these articles, however, are are in depth and deserve to be read. But you know it's nice to be able to pick that up, and they usually will intrigue the person. They'll open it up thinking that they're going to flutter through it, but then they'll stop and then start looking, usually at a photograph first, and then the text a little bit, and that's how it, you know, that's, I think that's wonderful. Yeah, and I do like that the articles are, like you said earlier, are, are grounded and, like, even when they're talking about more um, mystical, esoteric sorts of things, there's, there's a grounding there, there's a, a basis in fact. It's not the romantic woo-woo thing, or if it is... Right. It's said out front. <laughs> right. There is room for conjecture, but it, it, again, you have to, if you're going to assert something, you should have some sort of uh, reference, some sort of citation to it, whether that be uh, someone else's work or some experience, but you can't just say something and have it be true. By having a sort of historiographical approach to it, you, the author will show their expertise in the subject matter, so it's not just this is what I think. Uh, they've done their research, as that. Do your research. They have really done the research, 
and uh, shown what others have written on it, and drawn conclusions based on the available uh, evidence. Is there evidence to support something contrary or, or to drive it even further to be true? That remains to be seen, depending on the subject, right? But it remains to be seen, and so, but you can ask these questions finally, rather than saying, well, there must be something out there, which is I don't know, or I haven't found it yet. Well, you're able to develop your, your hypothesis and your thesis and, and make assertions based on available evidence. Is there something else? There could be, right? But you, at least you have a ground. And that's the beauty of research. And if someone writes something down, just because it's there doesn't mean maybe it's true, I suppose, even though it might be really well researched. But say you disagree. You have to say why. And then I want to see it in a rebuttal. I think it's too often we, we just uh, let things lie and we talk about it. Uh, we'll smack talk it even. I don't like that. I don't agree with that person. Well, okay, then great. This is a conversation. And so now you will rebut. And this is how we keep these organizations, these literary organizations, research organizations alive by bringing forth new ideas. How do we evolve without this? It's not just written in stone on paper. <laughs> yeah, that made no sense. It's not written in stone by being on paper, asserted on, in a magazine or a book. Uh, it's, uh, it has to be questioned all the time. And research, new, or new, uh, new facts arise all the time, right? So we can expand uh, our historical knowledge by investigating this new cutting edge research, which is why what makes Philalethes uh, important, because it's new writers who are discovering new things, not rehashing old things, because we find comfort in that. It's new, and, and asking important questions. That's the only way we can increase our historical knowledge. Just like if you, if you only read 19th century books and nothing from the 20th century, what, you know, you know what they said in the 19th century, right? And that's how a lot of our fulfillment organizations are, especially in regard to ancient cultures or esoteric movements. They're sort of amberized in a particular age, and you'll, you'll cite some of the classics. I won't pick on them because they have their use, but there are new avenues of research that are even decades old, but not in the 19th century. They've gone into the 20th century, into the 21st century. Because sometimes you have to modernize things, even though they're whatever, important to the Whatever. <laughs> but, ooh, I see that, Dave. I will say that just because it's modernized, and you have to, and you have to make things understandable. But sometimes there's a tendency to say that we're a bit clever by doing so. Now, does it make sense to modernize if people, if you lose the poetry? Now, no, one, one could argue, argue that, that people don't read poetry, <laughs> or they're, they're not great orators like they were in the 19th century. And certainly, you know, in the era where our Masonic ritual has come out of uh, long allocutions, you know, were, were, were popular, these long lectures, and they're very poetic, and, you know, meter and everything. You know, they learned how to do this in school. We just don't now. I mean, sometimes we don't use our lips to speak, right? Um, and that becomes offensive to some people where, you know, it sounds too above them and highfalutin and whatnot. But it's actually, you know, a beautiful way of, of uh, expressing oneself. So there's 
defense for that, but then there's also the, the, the danger of just confusing everybody with something that doesn't, they can't relate to it. Now, I don't know which comes first on this one, because is it, should we do it because nobody understands it before? Is that an evolution, or are we like accepting our doom because we're becoming dull? Or are we just trying to keep something locked, amberized in the past because we just, it's comfortable for us, and it, it just becomes too cumbersome? I wouldn't argue that the language is too complicated. It's that we don't teach people how to understand it. You know, so if they never understood it in school, we can say, well, they never understood it in school, why should we teach them that? Well, you can still use your, your debris charts that help you understand what some of these odd symbols are. Um, you can work with them more on understanding what this means, and you kind of get an educational uh, lesson in there. Just like when I was a teenager, you bought albums, and you were introduced to other types of literature from these album covers, right? Reading the liner notes. You don't get that anymore with, with online music, right? Um, so there's two arguments I see going on here, and I, I like to see that as a historian, these two arguments. I'm, I, I have my own preferences. I won't, I, I won't lie. I will say I do have a bias, in the, in, especially in this one. I have biases in, in a lot of different uh, uh, subjects. But when I write about them as a historian, I can't, I can't do that. I have to have both sides. And make assumptions on, you know, like argue both sides, you know, to see what really comes out on top. So, um, I can't give you any answers right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel for both of you. <laughs> and that's it, you know, these, these conversations, these arguments or disagreements, as you know, Masons have been uh, arguing about this since we began, right? There's always, always somebody that's overturning what was been done before. Someone becomes more ancient than the other. Exactly, we need the ancients in the water. Someone becomes, you know, there's, they're rectifying each other. Uh, <laughs> they're ancienting and accepting each other all over the place. So it's a. Uh, it's always fun to read something from that time period as they are doing it wrong. <laughs> they shall not eat out of the table. And you read it online today. Masonry is blah 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 blah. It's like, bro. <laughs> so, but now that conversation, it's easy to complain about this stuff and find fault. We all do because we see something that we imagined. And then we come up against the hard reality of it not being the, what we imagined. Is it, and, and sometimes there's a fight to make it what we imagined. And that's why history is important, because we can see it as it was expressed through a multitude of different people. Not just, it's not monolithic. And then we realize what we imagined is part of that continuum, but it's not the, it's not the main character. Right, and removing that main character that we're, we're small parts of this continuum, and it's not what we imagine. So, I remember when I became a Mason, it was very popular to you know be the chicken little and talk about the sky is falling, and Mason is this, and this is how a lot of people got on, this, uh, on, the, on the concert circuit, you know, the, speaking a lot about talking about how Masonry is doing this and that, and we feel comforted almost in our, in our, in our victimhood, right? Oh. We're set upon by the world, and people have TV now, and we're not doing this, and we're not spiritual enough, and men need this. But what are the answers? And you can see them in the in the records that are found in your Cranlodge archives of, on all the initiatives that they took to save masonry because it wasn't what we expected, <laughs> right? So I mean, where do we go from there? I don't know, but I think that I think 
I like history and I like to study history, but I can't worry about what I expect from it because I, I can be disappointed every day, I suppose. But what is it now and what, uh, what pleasure do I derive from it? And that's why I'm involved in the things I'm involved with. These, these things make me happy, they give me hope because I meet interested brothers that are you know, part of this weird little like after school club. <laughs> I don't necessarily fit into the, the, the normal class picture. So, so I, I find other brothers to play chess, chess with, and and, and, and we, we like, like these things, things and occasionally we can share it with others, and that's, that's important. important. Now more than, than ever, there are brothers that are wanting, they, they question things, they, they want to know the history, and they, they want, want responsible approaches, approaches. Right? right? They they, 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 they want, want to believe that there is a responsible approach. I mean, there are a lot of flaky approaches that somebody can believe. But, but you know, you, you, but you, you hope, hope that, that you're giving responsible information. It's our duty to give responsible information to say, hey, why doesn't society treat us like we're intelligent anymore? Be intelligent. Be a responsible adult. And you know, don't BS people that you know because you thought it was so that therefore it wasn't true, or you heard it somewhere. And and also to learn that there are responsible avenues of inquest. You can't just believe one thing. You have to. Look at these other sides, these other takes become familiar with who's written on it. Not everybody's an expert in it. Some people have their own agendas, right? What? So I, I feel like I could listen to you talk all day, but we only have a twenty-five minute episode. So no, no, I just, I just want to make sure that we get to the. We don't usually do this, but what is how would if one wished to join the Philadelphia Society, how would one go about doing so? Well, well, you can go online, and we have our website is uh, freemasonry.org. Um, Ooh, you got the good one. Wow. Yeah, there's uh, early on. There's freemason.com. There's a lot of them, but you can just go, if you can't remember that one, Google Philolathy Society. If it gets spelled. If it gets spelled. Phila. Google. P-H-I-L-A. Phila. Phila. Google. Phila. Phila. E S yes, Philolathes. I think I spelled that wrong. Um, <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Google will get it pretty uh, you, can, uh, you can go online, and uh, it's sixty dollars a year. Um, we do have a special where, for an extra twenty-five dollars, one-time fee, that you will get not only your annual subscription of four issues per quarter, you'll get uh, access to our uh, our past issues from the Wayback Machine um, online in a PDF fully searchable format. So that's a really good deal. So 60 bucks for the uh, quarterly and an extra 25 for the, the Wayback Machine. Um, it's an, and there's, we do have a program for lodge programs where lodges for up to 50 members be $250 for 50 members to get PDFs. That's a great deal. For Grand Lodges, we have a Master Mason program where all the master masons in the jurisdiction would uh, would get a uh, a uh, uh, four quarterly issues for the year to introduce them to the resource. Yeah. So I think that that's a really these are great solutions to that age-old question: How what is the young mason? Where does the young mason go to learn? We can't give the final answer, but we have we have a resource, and it's a, it's a quick and fun resource. Too. 
It's a, I mean, it's a great publication, and I, for sixty bucks a year, I'm, I guess I'm a life member. I guess yeah. I, I, I noticed that because I looked at it on my on my magazine. It says life member on the back. I was all proud of myself. But for sixty bucks a year, it's up there with the Scottish Rite Research Society. It's just a, a great deal. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you'll find that all of these. Let me make sure that I gave the right URL because I, like I said, they are similar to all the other Masonic ones out there, and I get them uh, mixed up. Let me. Bear with me. And I'm doing this without my glasses. <laughs> Don't yes. Google on live TV. Now it is freemasonry.org. Freemasonry.org. And that'll take us to the, the, the website resides on a Shopify site. So that's how we do it right now. So, and you're right, these are, these are, it's meant, to be, all of these organizations are not meant to uh, take all of your money to provide a useful and attractive uh, resource that you can use again and again and and you'd be surprised at the cost I mean why does it cost one it's been asked me way back when that well you could just why publish anything at all you could just put it on the internet for everybody I'm like, well, that's not the best use of the internet I think and that also many of many of the the, the papers that we publish would never have come to light in a responsible manner to a directed audience without the support. Every group has its own research arm, or in a journal is where they direct their energies to get to the, to the best possible type of public, right? If you just put it out on the internet, you'd have people not only stealing each other ideas, it wouldn't reach people, right? Unless you knew about it. And I would dare say that people collect papers. Rather than reading, so you know. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so having an attractive format, format it, it, it just goes with our human sensibilities. sensibilities. It's, it's aesthetics. We, we want, want something beautiful, beautiful and useful in our hands. Yeah. So. Indeed. Well, thank you very much, uh, Brother Adam. It was really great talking to you again, Adam Kendall, President of the uh, Phil Lathy Society. Thank you. We, I, I couldn't be happier to have you here. <laughs> hey, thank you. I appreciate it. So, thank, thank you so much. much guys. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.